Uh, we are in our fifth week of our study on the book of Daniel. Our series title is called Sovereign. And in that, we are looking at really, uh, not really the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but really how God is sovereign over all. From the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, he's been sovereign over all. So let's look in Daniel chapter 5. We're going to start from verses 1 to 6. We're going to read. If you haven't downloaded our app, Follow us on there, download the app, click on Sermon Notes, where you can um, take all the notes on there, email it to yourself for further study also. Starting from verse 1, Daniel 5, 1. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups with his, uh, for his, from his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and that had taken them from Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them, and while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and, so, and stone. Verse 5. Suddenly they saw a finger of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. So the king is literally seeing the writing on the wall, and he collapses, or his legs begin to buckle, and he collapses in fear. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before, the writing was on the wall, right? Uh, someone gets fired, right, and you tell your coworker, and the coworker goes, well, you can already tell, the writing was on the wall. They were showing up late, taking things, not being honest, the writing was on the wall, right? This is where it comes from. It comes from this uh, biblical passage here in Daniel chapter 5. I'll give a, a quick little background. Here in this banquet feast, uh, archaeologists have excavated a large hall in Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. And the uh, banquet hall that they found, archaeologists measured 55 feet wide by 165 feet long. So about the center of this building plus half more that size. And what archaeologists truly believe when they found it and excavated, they actually had plaster that was on there, gypsum, what we have drywall on our houses today. This is thousands of years prior. They already were having that way back then. In fact, Babylon was a very advanced city. They had calendars. They, brought, they were great in engineering and architecture and art. So what we have today, uh, drywall and plaster on our walls, it's the same thing that they had 1,500 years ago. Archaeologists found it, and they believe this is the very hall where they were in that night that this took place. In truth, Belshazzar considered his city so secure from any type of assault because the walls of the city were so massive. And I shared that in our last message a while back that they would even have uh, one historian writes that they would have chariot races on the top of the walls because they could fit several chariots and horses on the very top and it was hundreds of feet high and they would race it and really the king was starting to feel so secure 
One historian writes that the supply of food and water within the city could last for almost 20 years. That's how much crops they had, how much water supply that they had. That Even if enemies came from the outside and, and shut up the city and attacked them, they said, no problem, we can survive all with what we have here. The king felt untouchable and had little cause for concern, which leads to the title of my message this week, which is Judgment Day is Coming. Judgment Day is Coming. Turn to your neighbor and tell him Judgment Day is Coming. If you're at home, turn to uh, whoever you're with. If it's your kids, tell them Judgment Day is Coming. Get ready. Judgment Day is Coming. Whether we see it, or know it, judgment is coming. It wasn't just coming for King Belshazzar there in that time. It's coming for everyone. There will be a day where we will have to stand before God and judgment is coming. The thesis for my message, I want to unpack three lessons that we learned from Babylon's rise and fall of this great kingdom. And in truth, it was all about three things. It was the great pursuit of power, possessions, and pleasure. Power, possessions, and pleasure. These three things aren't bad. They're not wrong, nor are they even sinful. In fact, God has wired us human beings uh, this way to pursue these three things, power, possessions, and pleasure. But it's how we steward these three things that will determine if we're ready on judgment day. Did you get that? We're, it's not bad or wrong or sinful, but how we steward power, possessions, and pleasure will determine if we're ready on Judgment Day. Let's go to our first point. The meaningless pursuit of power. The meaningless pursuit of power. Let's pick up from verse 7 where we left off. Verse 7. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to them, the wise men of Babylon... Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor, given a gold chain placed around their neck, and will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing on the wall or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale, and his nobles too were shaken." And in truth, if we look over the whole Babylonian reign, it was always this uh, pursuit and struggle for power. Sh pursuit and struggle for power. Uh, take, for example, this situation with Belshazzar, who is king there. He's throwing a massive banquet for a thousand people in a room about the size of this, plus maybe almost little, almost half of this room extended. And, and they're all in this room, a thousand of them. Yet, it, this seems at the most inopportune time for him to have a feast. King Belshazzar is a co-regent king, meaning he's here as a co-regent king under his father, who's Nebonidus, who's really the king, and, and his father, Nebonidus, is ruling 50 miles north of him in another palace in uh, the extended Babylon. He's ruling there, Nebonidus, and here, Belshazzar is ruling Babylon. So they are about 50 miles apart in the city of Tama, his father. Belshazzar's grandfather is Nebuchadnezzar. One, on one commentary, they begin to write about the possible tensions between 
the father Nebonidus, who's about 50 miles north, and the son Belshazzar, who's ruling in Babylon. Nebonidus spent 10 years in Tema while his son Belshazzar was carrying out all the royal duties in Babylon. The father lives 50 miles north in another city, and, and uh, several historians talk and tell how for 10 years, Nebonidus never visits his son. In fact, one other commentary mentions how that even, uh, we're going to see shortly, we're going to read a part of the story where Belshazzar's mother comes. And Belshazzar's mother is living there in this, in this palace in Babylon while the father Nebonidus is in another palace. And what's going on? I, I think there are family issues going on. How many of you have ever had family issues before? Issues with aunts and uncles and moms and dads and siblings and, 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 and all cousins and, and all kinds of things happening. Well, it's really human nature and it's been happening uh, over centuries that there are always going to be these family issues. In fact, I think in, in many ways, maybe Belshazzar, and it's not clearly written, but historians kind of allude to it, that maybe Belshazzar is feeling very um, bitter about his father. His father is making him, who's the, he's second in command, Belshazzar, 50 miles south, and he's doing all the work, yet his father never visits him. His mother's living with him, but what is his dad doing up there? And one, says, uh, one historian says that the father maybe was protecting trade routes that were coming through. But in, in, in many ways, I think even like the story of uh, the prodigal son where he tells his father to give me my inheritance and go. I think in many ways, in Belshazzar, Belshazzar's heart, he really probably wanted his father to be dead and gone with so that he could be in power. He's doing all the work, yet his father is king 50 miles away and never visits him for 10 years. Family problems, right? How many of you that it's caused stress in your life with family problems? This is family issues going on here. It wasn't Jerry Springer, how we had today, but in their own way, it was far worse because they begin killing, uh, they allow each other to be killed also. It's this power struggle. And it's true, we even see power struggles even in marriages, this power struggle. Between siblings, a power struggle. Two days prior, the father's city in Tema gets destroyed. So the, the banquet is happening here in Babylon, Belshazzar, a thousand nobles celebrating. Two days prior, his father's city in Tema, the Medes and Persian, comes in and wipes out the city. They wipe out that whole city, and it seems like, why in the world would Belshazzar throw a big old party after his father's city just gets wiped out? Belshazzar began to move quickly, some historians believe, because he wanted to proclaim himself as the new ruler of the entire empire. In fact, he knows that the Medes and Persians took, takes out his father's city 50 miles north and that they're probably right outside the walls of Babylon, and yet the king is like, I'm so secure in my kingdom, I don't even need to worry about those guys. Instead, you know what we're going to do? We're going to party, and we're going to throw a big old banquet feast, and we're going to drink and party, and that's exactly what they were doing. This festival, some say, it was a celebration of Belshazzar's coronation. He pursues earthly power only to be quickly dethroned very shortly. 
You know, in truth, it's not bad, wrong, or even sinful to pursue power. But God's kingdom is a dichotomy to the world's kingdom. It's a complete opposite. There's a stark difference from the way we pursue power in God's kingdom and the way the world pursues power. Jesus says, if you want power and and, uh, those who want to go up, you must go down. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 44, Jesus called to them together and said this, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over the people. Their officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave for everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Serve others and give his life a ransom for many. In truth, in life, there's this constant power struggle. And I, oftentimes, I, I counsel at many different couples, and, and you see it, right, where there's this, even this power struggle within a marriage. And oftentimes, I, I hear this say, hey, I'm the one in charge. I'm the head of the house. I'm the one, uh, I, I, I heard one a couple of say this, hey, I'm the one who uh, wears the pants in this house, and the wife was like, yeah, but I'm the belt that holds you up. Without me, you ain't nothing. You just go to shame. The pants just starts falling, right? And at times, there's this power struggle. And in truth, the higher up you go in God's kingdom, all it means is that you become the chief servant. In my house... The uh, uh, Lord has to help me because it's humbling, but I'm supposed to be the chief servant, not the head of the home where I'm like, I wear the pants and you know what, I'm in charge. The more power you have, the more Jesus says you're to serve. So whatever that you're facing, whatever power that you have, it's a power to serve others. The great apologist Ravi Zacharias said this about power. It's not just power that corrupts. It's the intoxication of our ego and our own selves that breaks us up from the inside. Uh, How many of you have ever seen this before where power goes to people's heads? Give somebody a little bit of power and they turn into somebody different, right? They start abusing power. And this is why even, even you look at even the police department, they go through all kinds of training and things because there's such great power that's given them. They're trying to vet people that, who are going to steward that power in the right way. It's the intoxication of our ego, he says, Ravi, that we don't get caught up with our own fanfare. You and I are given power here on earth, but our response to steward should be to serve others. The second thing we learn from the fall of Babylon is the meaningless pursuit of possessions. The meaningless pursuit of possessions. Listen to what King Belshazzar does. He offers the person who can interpret the writings on the wall, power, possessions, and access to great pleasure. Let's pick up at verse 15, Daniel 5, 15, 16. The wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told you can give the interpretations and solve difficult problems. So this is the king who is now talking to Daniel. So none of his astrologers could read them, the magi, all of those people there. And his mother, thank God for mothers who have wisdom, women, I have to tell you, women have a sixth sense 
right? You got five senses, but women somehow have this intuition that knows. That this, we see in this story here with Belshazzar, he doesn't know what to do. He's quivering, weak in the knees, and his mother hears what's going on. His mother comes out and says, hey, listen, there is this guy, Daniel, who your grandfather used, who he can interpret and tell you what to do. He's like, okay, mom, gotcha. He's king. He's this young king, but he's like taking orders from his mom. So and mom's like, Go find Daniel. He can tell you what this dream is. So finds Daniel. He's telling Daniel, if you tell me what these words are and what the meanings are, you will be clothed with robes of royal purple, of royal honor, speaking of access to great pleasure. You will also have a gold chain placed around your neck, speaking of great possessions. And you will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom, speaking of great power. He's giving him this opportunity of power, possessions, and great pleasure. The Babylonians amassed a great wealth of possessions as they conquered the surrounding nations of Assyria, Egypt, Jerusalem, Judah, and many others. They would gather gold and silver from around, around the surrounding nations, and they would bring all that back, and they would melt it down for whatever they wanted to do in their empire. They would gather the finest jewelry, art, riches for their own pleasure. The king offers God's servant Daniel access to pleasure, possession, great power. But listen to Daniel. He understood his role was not to chase after things and stuff of this world. How many of you know that would be a great opportunity, right? Where God puts before you and you're like given power, you become third in command. You're going to have all access to wealth, riches, and great pleasures. Man, how many of you know that it would be a temptation, right? Uh, that would be temptation. I mean, let's be real and honest. And here, Daniel understands. He's like, I'm not here to serve the kingdoms of this world. I'm here to serve the kingdoms of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Jesus says this, Don't store up yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust eat them, and rust destroys them, or where thieves break in to steal them. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in to steal. For wherever your treasure is, there, catch this, the desires of your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, the desires of your heart will be also. Meaning, wherever you put your treasure, your desires will follow after where you put your treasures. You always can tell who's giving of their time, talents, and treasures to God's kingdom. I've learned over the years of serving not just in this church, even in other churches. At times, the people in the church who complain the most, grumble the most, uh, and, and have the most things to say in the church are the people who don't get involved, don't serve, don't clean, don't give, don't do anything. They have no investment in the place, so their heart and desire isn't there. You often do see also in the church, and this is true not just of churches, it's also even in the workplace. Those who see the value are who are investing there are the ones who value those things and are willing to give their time, talents, and treasure. Where your treasure is, your desire will follow also. A nun and missionary, Mother Teresa, she devoted her life to caring for the sick and the poor. She would hold the dying and suffering in her arms so they could die with dignity and love because many of them were abandoned and all alone. And she would hold them as they took their last breath to give them dignity as she prayed for them. 
from her children home in Calcutta alone. It says that they have saved over 3,000 children from abortions and many of them who are even prostitutes and they, instead of they would cast out the babies they would go and she would gather them says give me any baby says do not ever abort any of those children she says let me take them in and they would care for them and place them into families who who would take care of these children by the time of her death in 1997 she was at the age of 87 her her uh missionary of charity that she started had then 610 foundations that it started. 600, uh, this is hard to comprehend. 610 foundations in 123 countries from one woman who dedicated all of what she had back to God and his kingdom. Everything poured out for God and his kingdom. 123 countries, 610 foundations there were thousands of volunteers who would run these missions. Mother Teresa received various awards for her tireless and effective charity. She was awarded the Jewel of India, which is the highest honor bestowed on any Indian civilian, as well as given the gold medal of the Soviet Peace Committee. In 1979, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition for her great work. This is what she said, and this caught me and, and struck a chord in me. She says this, the poorest people in all the world is those in the affluent West. She says, Americans are very poor. They are rich in things, but poor in Christ. She said, I serve those in the slum who are poor in things, but rich in Christ. And then I say here, the meaningless pursuit of possessions, that if we're not careful in the pursuit of possessions and what we have, it's not a bad thing, but if we don't steward them and balance them right, it can get out of sync and it could be our demise. Our greatest blessing can be our greatest demise. It was said of Mother Teresa that when she passed away, they opened up her trunk of all her possessions that she had. Now, I want you to know who she was. There was millions and millions of dollars that were poured into her and all of her charities. Millions of dollars given, and she would dump that right back. 123 countries, 610 foundations that she started. And she had great possessions. She could have had great possessions and wealth. But what does she do? When they open up her trunk of all of her possessions that she had, in it was just three saris. Three pieces of clothing of all of her possessions. All she had was three sorry, One of them is her in her iconic, the blue and white one, where she goes out when she's in public. And the other two was that where she would hold the dying in her arms. That's all that she had in her possessions, in her trunk. Everything that she was blessed with, she then poured back into God's kingdom to say, we're going to help those and pray for those and take in those who are being aborted to give them a great hope and a great future. She totally understood that her treasures were not to be stored up here on earth, but to be stored up in heaven. I pray that we would not be rich here on earth, but rich in Christ. Are you and I stewarding the possessions and treasures that God has given us here on earth well? Or are we like 
Belshazzar and the Babylonian kingdom who over the decades and decades have amassed great wealth and great possessions and all these different things only to be left empty. The remedy to materialism really is that we are being blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Number three, the meaningless pursuit of pleasures. The meaningless pursuit of power, possessions, and pleasures. Some commentaries say that this banquet feast included a big orgy party. That he's having this big old orgy party here where he's celebrating with a thousand of his concubines and wives and all these nobles there. One commentator begins talking about that this wasn't just they were sitting back and sipping wine. I mean, they were having such a good time that these guys were blasted, drunk, wasted. I mean, if you've ever seen somebody just, they had too much to drink before, right? And there's something about, what do they call it, liquid courage, right? I remember growing up, we grew up, uh, our family wasn't saved, and uncles, even aunties, some who were shy, but when they start getting alcohol in them, man, they start getting them, they start dancing, they're doing things, they grab the mic, they like sing karaoke, right? They get up and they start, the one who would never say anything, they would bury grief and pain in the family the moment they got enough alcohol, they just start fighting, right? They start telling things deep inside. And truth, this is kind of what's happening here at this party, because Belshazzar here, he, he's the great pleasures and these orgies and these parties, he drops down so low, he's like, man, my father's kingdom just got wiped out two days ago. I'm the new king in town. And man, we're going to celebrate. Even though they're right outside the walls of this city, I'm untouchable. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. There was a reason why his legs were so wobbly, I think, and where he falls down when he hears the writing on the wall. Below one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife, which is the kingdom that he's ruling or the palace that he's ruling at, included cascading waterfalls that came down from the palace and beneath the waterfalls were archways that had harems and prostitutes for the great pleasure of the kings and all of his men and, and all of that. Great pleasure afforded to these kings. And yet we see Daniel. Daniel comes into Babylon at the age of about 14, 15 years old. In chapter 4, where Pastor Ben preached about last week, he's about age 54. It was about 40 years. And here we see from chapter 4 to chapter 5, about 30 years past, Daniel's about 84 years old now. He's an older guy, older prophet, still faithfully serving God. This is now the 70th year that they have been in exile. And we're going to kind of put the pieces together. Daniel, I'm sure, in the back of his mind, understood Jeremiah, who prophesied seven years prior where he said that, that the children of Israel would be in exile, but in 70 years, they would return back home. This was the 70th year. Daniel, who's faithfully praying, Daniel, who's faithfully seeking God, Daniel, who's faithful and consistent, he totally understands in perspective, prophetically, where he's at in the season that he's in. The 70 years have come. It's in the back of his mind. He's like, man, for 70 years, I've waited for this moment. We're about to go back home. It's coming. 
in the great, great power, great possessions, great pleasure, it's going to come to an end because God is sovereign and ruler over all. And Daniel understands this. And he's seeing this moment. Daniel understood it. And listen to what Daniel tells the king when the king offers them power, possessions, and, and pleasure. Daniel's 84 now. How many of you, when, when you ever been around older people who they just don't care anymore? Or, or maybe are, are you there right now where you just don't care anymore, right? You used to be patient and, and, and uh, you would curb your tongue and bite it and a little more patient with those who are younger. But when you're in your older years, you're like, I just don't care anymore. I'm going to say, I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? Daniel's here. He's 84, okay? Listen to what he tells the king. After the king tells him all these, I'm going to give you these three things. Daniel answers the king, keep your gifts. Keep your gifts and give them to someone else. 30 years prior when he's interpreting the dream, he then, he's, he's a little more tempered. He says, oh, king, you are great. Oh, king. He, he has a way, a, a tactfulness about him 30 years prior. But in his older years, he's like, listen, cut to the chase. Keep those gifts, king. Give them to somebody else. I will tell you, though, what the writing means, Daniel says. <clears throat> Verse 24. So God sent this hand to write the message. And this is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is what the word means. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and have found not measured up. Parson, divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed with purple robes and a gold chain was hung around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar, even though Daniel said, keep those stuff, Belshazzar's like, no, here you go. I'm going to give you that anyway. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the entire kingdom at age 62. It was said of two Greek historians, Herodotus and Zephon, they testified that the banquet was in progress. They're partying it up with great pleasure. The very night Babylon fell, and this is the exact date they give, October the 12th, we're one week away, October the 12th. 539 B.C., October the 12th, 539 B.C. Belshazzar is celebrating his ascent to power and enjoying all of its pleasures, but it didn't even last one night. Not even one night his ascent to power, possessions, and great pleasure. C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasure but God shouts to us in our pain. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. What am I saying? How many of you have ever been there before uh, in sin, in pleasure, and you hear the still, small voice of God? Walk away. Don't get involved. Leave that. Get, you know better than that. Come back to me. In our pleasure, God 
whispers and something that happens that God is a just God, right? That he also has to hold us true, that there are consequences to our sin and actions and there eventually will be a judgment day because he's gracious, but he's also just. And there comes a time where he's like, no more. And at times, God has to shout to us to pain because he can't get a hold of us. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, right? And it's like, not till we go, oh, ow, 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 Lord. Okay, uncle, uncle, Lord. Okay, you got me, you got me. And unfortunately, many people have to wait till God is shouting at them in pain to surrender. And all the while, many times God is whispering to us and we dull his still, small voice. The Medes and Persians, for the last several days, after taking down uh, Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus, in the other palace, began to divert the Euphrates River. And over the several days, they drained the river into a large dry lake. And they slowly drained it down to the point where one commentary, one historian, talks about it that they were wading in the river. And the walls went down 30 feet underground. But they drained the river down so much so that they were able to go under the walls while hiding under the dark of night. And in one night, in one fell swoop, the Medes and Persians overtake Belshazzar and the entire kingdom on the night of the banquet. Solomon, one of the wisest and wealthiest men, understood the futility of pleasure in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 to 4 and 7 to 12. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself up with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched on to foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. He's trying to dull his pain with wine and those things to feel meaning and purpose. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself. I planted great, beautiful vineyards. Verse 8, I collected great sums of silver and gold and treasures of many kings and many provinces. I had wonderful singers, both men and women. I had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could ever desire. This is Solomon. Wealthiest, wisest man. I don't know how wise he was. It finally took him a while to wise up, but I have everything a man could desire. I become greater. I had become greater than all who lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take, and I denied myself no pleasure. Talking about hedonism, living after just the pleasures of this world. I'm telling you, it's a meaningless pursuit to pursue pleasure just to fulfill yourself. It will lead you down a dark and empty road that when you reach there, you will feel even more empty after filling yourself with pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work. That's me. I love work. <laughs> I found pleasure in that and a reward for all my labors, but even that, meaningless. 
if it's to build my own kingdom and not his own. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was also meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. If you're here today or watching online, chasing after earthly pleasures of this world, nothing will satisfy you like the almighty God. Learn from history. Learn from those who had greater amounts of wealth and, and pleasures and learn from them. That's wisdom. Wisdom says I don't need to learn from myself. I can learn from somebody else. It was like chasing after the wind and there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Chasing earthly pleasures to fulfill our temporary desires is futile and meaningless. G.K. Chesterton was an English writer, philosopher, and lay theologian. He said, meaninglessness comes from us being, not from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from us being weary of pleasure. What is G.K. Chesterton saying? It's not us going through pain that leads us to meaningless because oftentimes we know maybe the, the, the purpose behind the pain is when we've pursued great pleasure, had it all, sinned, lived our life, done what we wanted to do, and still feel empty and meaningless. Solomon was weary of pleasure, which led him to meaninglessness. How many of you have ever enjoyed pleasures of life and sin that have been left empty before? Let's be honest. I've been there, right? The pleasures of life. Remember what that was like after having your fill of pleasure and then being more empty than when you started? God's beckoning you and I to come back to his heart. Beckoning you and I to come home to him. We feel empty because if our life has no purpose, then it will also lack meaning. A few islands away from, from here, victims of leprosy were taken and isolated on Kalaupapa Molokai. Priest Joseph Damien, who was from Belgium, served people with leprosy. And he touched them, dressed their wounds, built their homes schools, roads, hospitals. He built water reservoirs, made coffins, dug graves, built churches, and preached to them daily. Eleven years into his mission, he contracted leprosy himself. He served the people with great pleasure for the next five years while battling leprosy himself. When he died, the people of Kalapapa wanted his body to be buried there. The man who faithfully was like the hands and feet of Jesus. And instead of seeking pleasures of the world, he literally was dressing their wounds and willing to be sick and die with the people that he was serving, loving, and giving. The people of Belgium wanted their hero to come home and be buried. It was said that the people negotiated in Kalapapa with those of Belgium that at least if his arm 
or at minimum his hand were cut off and sent back to us so that we could bury it here because that was the hand that touched us when nobody would touch us. I thought about that for a moment that this priest could have done anything, gone anywhere, sought pleasures of all kinds, but what he's doing is seeking the pleasures of the almighty God of serving others. The people finally got it back and they don't know if fully it was his arm or just his hand, but they bury it there in Kalapapa as a remembrance of the hand of Jesus that touched them. It's a meaningless pursuit of pleasure if it's only to gratify us here in this life. Are you, are you listening to me today online? It's a meaningless pursuit of power, possessions, and pleasure. Ask Babylon. Talk about wealth and power and possessions and pleasures. They had it all. They were rich in this world, yet poor in Christ. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence. This is the psalmist. And the pleasures of living with you forever. The pleasures of living with you forever. There will be great pleasure living in heaven for all of eternity. He is sovereign over all. What is not that pleasures are wrong, but it's about this almost this delayed gratification. If we see in our culture today, it's about giving my fill now. And it's the worst thing that's contrary to the kingdom of God. But God calls us, says, Your reward will be great. We can take our pleasure here on earth temporarily or be in the hands of Almighty God for all of eternity, enjoying His presence and great pleasure. We are not alone. Satan tempts Jesus with the same three things in the wilderness. He says, make bread for the pleasure of eating. Satan says, worship Satan for the possessions of all the world's kingdoms. The third thing he offers, cast himself from the temple for the power of commanding angels to take charge. Satan offers Jesus the same three things that the Babylonian king offers to Daniel. And just as Jesus was faithful, he uses the word of God, says, get behind me, Satan. Not taking the temporary earthly pleasures and possessions and power today I have and, and have a purpose here in this life. Jesus understood his purpose. Daniel understood his purpose. He's serving 70 years faithfully. He's watching and witnessing the prophecy unfolding right before his eyes. They're returning home. I'm telling you, we are living in the last days where we are watching prophecy being fulfilled and unraveling that was spoken of long ago. And my hope and heart in the message too was to see that God is sovereign over all. And He's calling you and I. He's 
patient and he's merciful and he's, but yet he's a just God and there's going to come a day where we're all going to have to stand before judgment day. Babylonians have to do it. We will have to do it. Person who gives his life, money, and possessions to receive rewards from God will hear the greatest resounding words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. In closing, judgment day is coming, my title. Meaningless pursuit of power, possessions, and pleasure. But if we steward power, possession, and pleasure, we will be ready on judgment day. My job, my hope as a pastor is to prepare you for that day to be ready to stand before the Almighty God. How do we do it? By surrendering to His sovereignty over our lives. He knows far better the plans for your life than you and I could ever dream or plan on our own. In truth, when we surrender to God's sovereignty, our entire lives become a response of worship back to Him. What we do now is in response of what He's already done. We're not working for it. We're working from it, what He's already done for you and I. So the three ways we steward is we, one, we serve Him. We're given power to serve. Second thing is how do we steward? Well, we give. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We give of our time, our talents, our treasure. And the third thing, the opposite is that we are to seek Him. Seek Him that the pleasures of eternity in heaven is worth it. It's worth it. Can we all stand as we close? I want to pray over you as before Pastor Ben comes and closes and leads you for those who are ready to receive Christ. This has been just burning on my heart. The Almighty God knows each and every one of you and your story. And just as Jesus was tempted with power, possessions, and pleasure, just as Daniel was tempted with power, possessions, and pleasure, you and I are tempted with power, possessions, and pleasures, and it's not a bad thing. But will we steward it well to build God's kingdom? and not our own kingdom.